Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and welcome to part five of our long-form examination of a game publishing agreement that was put out by game publisher Raw Fury at the end of last year, at the end of 2020. Now, as I said, this is part five. So if you haven't seen the prior parts, you might want to check them out before just diving into this one. We do talk about some concepts and some definitions that we will go over again as part of this section of the series. But overall, we've already talked about who owns the intellectual property of the game, how it needs to be delivered by the developer, how the publisher is going to market it, and how funding is going to be treated from publisher to developer. More specifically, how that money has to get back in the publisher's hands before when? Before they share the profits, which is where the rubber hits the road, where everybody is always interested in talking. Certainly when I have clients talking about whatever contracts they're looking at, they're always very interested in what kind of money do I get? How do I get it? When do I get it? What do I have to worry about? And so without further ado, let's take a look at part five of this series, Sharing the Profits, in which we are going to discuss two separate sections of the Raw Fury publishing agreement. First, Section 14, and this is going to set the baseline very easily, but with a lot of legalese, as you will see. Publisher and developer shall share revenue from the game and any ancillary product. Remember, when we talked about the definitions, ancillary products are the things directly related to the game. Your strategy guides, your CDs, a poster of the characters, whatever it might be. But it's not sequels and prequels and things like that. And they will share it as follows. Publisher is entitled to publisher share of net revenue. Developer is entitled to net revenue, less publisher share. Quotes, developer share. And that's really the entire operative section of the contract for what is owed to whom. But we obviously have to unpack some of the definitions there. Publisher, that's your raw fury, is entitled to publisher share of net revenue, capital N, capital R. So the big item here, as I've highlighted in red, is what is publisher share? That's going to be a percentage. And if we go to the definitions and we look down here, we see that publisher share is 50% of net revenues, which, as anybody can do the math at home, means that this is a 50-50 agreement. You could have this entire agreement if you were going to negotiate it differently, if you both had agreed on some other percentage ratio sharing be set solely by changing the publisher share because of the way this operates. So if the publisher share is 40%, the developer share is 60% and vice versa. And you can do that along any numbered lines. This is a 50-50 share. By the time you get to net revenue, as opposed to gross revenue, then you're sharing at 50 cents for each dollar to publisher and 50 cents for each dollar to developer. Now, as you can probably guess, there's a lot of importance as to what makes up net revenue. If you aren't familiar with accounting terms, gross revenue is every dollar that comes in the door. When Raw Fury sells your video game and they get 20 bucks from that person that gives them 20 bucks, net revenue is that amount less what we would consider as expenses. Uh, and you're going to see this described very fulsomely in this document because it's very important, whether you're on the publisher or the developer side, to make sure there is clarity around what you mean by net revenue, because the net revenue definition is going to be different in virtually every agreement. They're going to arrive at probably similar places, but they're going to say how they got there in different ways. So let's take a look at the components that come out of the gross that don't get shared between the publisher and the developer before that sharing is calculated. Taxes. Okay, so that makes sense, right? The taxes might come into Raw Fury, but they're going to get remitted to whatever government or municipality they are owed to. 
So Raw Fury doesn't have to split the money for taxes coming in because they're going out the door. Amounts reimbursed by customers such as, but not limited to, insurance packing, custom duties, shipping, and similar charges, right? So if the customer pays for something that Raw Fury otherwise paid for, that isn't income, right? If you think about it on your own kind of individual tax circumstance, if you spent money on getting something that got you money, the, the fact that you got money in the second step isn't income. It doesn't mean that you suddenly owe 50 cents to somebody else. It doesn't mean that you owe more taxes on that amount because it reflects an expense that you made. And you'll see that in the rest of these categories as well. Promotional amounts, such as, but not limited to, credits, cash, and trade discounts, freight discounts, rebates, or promotional allowances to customers. Same kind of concept. If Raw Fury otherwise was limiting the money it was receiving or putting money out the door to get people into your shop to buy your game, then that comes off of the gross revenue calculation. All costs of materials, manufacturing, replication, assembly, and delivery of final package ancillary products or game, including packaging materials, labor, freight, and fulfillment charges. Again, okay, if we have to put this thing in a box and ship it somewhere across the world or even just across our country, that's going to cost us a certain amount of money. If it gets reimbursed by the customer, that's great, but it's not split between the revenue amounts. And if it doesn't get reimbursed, then that cost gets to come off of net revenue and can include all of these various categories. This is including, again, as we've talked about earlier in the series, this is an illustrative list. It's not an exclusive list, but you already see some categories here where if you didn't trust the party on the other side of the table, there could be some games playing, right? Labor, what does that look like? Are you paying your internal people for packaging things up? What does that cost structure look like? Once you have those kinds of connected relationships, you kind of got to get a little bit more understanding if you're on the developer side, that none of this is wrong. None of this in this section that we're going to talk about is wrong factually. But one thing that I might recommend if I were sitting on the developer side is to say, all right, Raw Fury, this all makes sense. Can you show me some examples of how you have treated this calculation for prior clients? And you can redact all the information that's necessary, but what does this look like in point of fact? And obviously, one of the things the publisher will usually say is, and every case is different, and this doesn't reflect what it might be for you, uh, but they can generally give you, this is what it would look like. This is how this happens. This is what the calculation looks like on net revenue. And doesn't amount to a guarantee, but you can start to get a feel for the fact that the publisher is doing their accounting correctly. They aren't overly playing games with various amounts of expenses and things like that. And you can get comfortable with it. Uh, And I recommend that for really anybody that's looking at these kind of contracts is you talk to them and you say, okay, can you show me how this works in practice? Um, All royalty, license fees, and other amounts payable to distribution channels, platform owners, system licensors for the right to publish and manufacture ancillary products or game or to third-party licensors in connection with licenses for the game. So this is, hey, we're going to owe money to Sony right? Sony's going to take their cut. So it doesn't really necessarily come all the way in. It really depends on where the funds flow is, but that doesn't matter for purposes of setting the legal obligations. So they say, look, if you sell your game for 20 bucks and Sony takes six off the top, then Sony took six off the top. I don't owe you a revenue share of money that isn't mine. I didn't get it. Uh, I expensed it. I, I spent it on getting your game out there. I paid it to Sony. It's all the same. This is just a way of categorizing that concept. Amounts for replacements, backups, or revised versions, including any amount for copies of the game, which is distributed by publisher to existing customers as backup replacement or corrected copies, whether provided under a backup or warranty or maintenance policy or otherwise. So this says, hey, look, developer, if we have to replace this thing, if we have to fix it, 
then the fact that we might have received money for that process in some capacity, and it's hard to kind of envision this necessarily in the real world, but if we would have received amounts for that, then we can net against the replacement cost of the game proper. So if you get uh, a hat, an ancillary product uh, about this game, and it turns out it's busted, they paid you $20, and I had to replace it, it cost me $3 to replace, I'm only going to count $17 for the revenue share. That might be the best way to think about something like this. And it can happen with games. Of course, it's a little bit more oddball for things like uh, digital games, although we're seeing some of these things play out with the CD Projekt and Cyberpunk 2077 release, where you do have notions of refunds. And if they owed something to somebody else, you would have these kinds of calculations taking place. Similar for G, amounts for returns such as credits, refunds, price protection, or markdown allowances. If we have to cut the money we get, we don't suddenly owe you on money we didn't receive. So anything that goes into our process of expenditure for selling this thing gets netted out of that gross revenue calculation. Similar for currency exchange fees, which can come up as we'll see in the next section. Uh, They do reserve the right to pay you in Swedish currency rather than American currency. So that's something that you're going to want to keep track of from a financial perspective if you're on the developer side. All amounts expended by or on behalf of publisher to advertise, market, or promote the game or ancillary products in any medium or manner in the territory, which brings us back to this notion of the marketing spend. Right, We talked about this in the marketing section of this series already, but they promised to spend a certain amount of marketing dollars on marketing the game, but they also reserve the right to decide basically what they are going to spend on marketing. And it's a good faith kind of alliance. The incentives are aligned, as I've talked about earlier in the series. You're both in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, trying to make money off of sales of this game. But you do have to trust that Raw Fury knows what it's doing. You do have to want to go into business with them in marketing your game because they have this overall authority, as we talked about in the earlier parts of the series, to decide what marketing spend is. And then that gets netted off the top of your revenue share. If Raw Fury is wrong and they say, hey, this is going to be great, but we need to spend a huge amount of money marketing it. We're going to do this various thing. We're going to laser etch the moon, whatever it might be. And it doesn't turn out Uh, They get to have that money that they spent on marketing recouped before we start hitting that revenue share component. It all comes off the top of the gross revenue calculation. So that's important to note. It's one of the reasons why when we talked about the marketing section in that part of the series, we did note that they said you get a seat at the table for most things, but they do have the final authority to determine what that marketing looks like. Similarly, in the next section, all amounts expended by or on behalf of publisher to reproduce, port, redevelop, and remake game for platform where publisher has rights, but developer does not need to deliver is another interesting component, right? You may recall when we talked about definitions in the first part of this series, there's a section right underneath the definition for platform that's actually legally operative. It probably doesn't belong here. It's not where I would put it if I were in charge of this document that says publisher may request in cooperation with the developer who shall not unreasonably deny such a request that third-party porting and or development of game where the cost of such work shall be deducted from gross revenue. So we see the rubber hitting the road now, which says, okay, the publisher can go and the developer can't block it unreasonably and say third-party X can make a port for this game. So you release it on the PC. We're going to hire somebody to put it on the PlayStation. And we, of course, get to net the cost that we spend on that third-party developer against what we would otherwise owe you in terms of royalties. Now, there is a second component here. We're skipping ahead a little bit to the bottom. We're going to talk about this in a later part of the series. But you'll note here in the kind of termination concept, one of the things that happens. 
in the event that developer fails to deliver the game by the final delivery date, that's a date we've talked about earlier in the series, and this breach is not remedied within 30 days or as agreed in writing between publisher and developer, always reserving the right to change that date if need be, publisher may make other arrangements, including but not limited to engaging third-party consultants to develop the game. All costs associated therewith shall be fully recoupable at any time from any and all royalties and other sums accruing to developer under this agreement. If the developer owes us money, we can go get the money we spent back on finishing the game. Now, obviously, when you find yourself in this provision, you aren't doing what you're supposed to do as the developer or the publisher is otherwise unhappy. Everybody's unhappy. So we're already in a kind of anger pose when you get to that kind of concept. But they do reserve in the calculation the right to say, hey, if we expended money on somebody else fixing this thing up, then that comes off the top of the gross revenue calculation. Developer funding repayments is described in section 12. We talked about service spend as described in section 13. This is just the belt and suspenders language as we have talked about in the past that says, as we talked about in the last section of this series, publishers shall deduct the total principal amount from gross revenue until 100% plus markup has been recovered and publisher will deduct the service spend from gross revenue until 100% of the service spend has been recovered. So at the end of all this, once you get down all the way through all of these tiers, that's when you get net revenue. That's when you get a number at the bottom of the calculation here with all of these credits and debits. It says, okay, now we get $10 and you get five and I get five, but they get their expenses reimbursed first. And there's nothing wrong with the way this is structured. There can be little things that you might negotiate, little concerns, little sensitivities that you might have if you're a publisher, certainly. And if you're a developer, certainly as well. But overall, this is the concept you will always see. And you always want to focus when you're talking about a net revenue royalty on how you get from gross, which is easy and hard to game, right? A dollar in is a dollar in how you get from that number to net, because people can play games with these definitions. People can do things where you say, wait, that's not an expense. That's not something that you should get credit for off of the top of gross revenue. And that's where you have detailed negotiations. I really don't see those things here. There are a couple things that I would want to see kind of gamed out in terms of how does this look in practice uh, if, if I were negotiating against Raw Fury on these kinds of questions. But other than that, this is a normal thing. And if you're concerned about royalties, you should definitely be focusing on how you arrive at that net revenue number. And how you get paid, section 18. Now I do have some quibbles here. There are some odd definitional things here that don't appear to work uh, in this document. I will point those out. That's a little bit legal easy, uh, but I will fly them for you because it does make it a little trickier to read. So we've got revenue share payments. It is agreed that developers shall be entitled to the developer's share of royalty payments as follows. So we don't actually define royalty payments which is okay. But one of the things that I note here is it says the developer's share, and they actually went through the trouble of using capital D and capital S and defining developer share as net revenue minus publisher share, which makes a lot of sense and could make this a little bit cleaner. Instead, what we get is royalties on account of revenue share earned by developer shall be paid in either United States dollars or Swedish kronor, less all advances and other permitted charges. And you go and you look for the term revenue share in this document, and even though it's a capital R and a capital S, you don't see it defined. 
and, and so it's one of those areas where like, if I were in charge of this document, I would say, okay, you, you have the defined term developer share. You probably don't need revenue share earned by developer. You could just say royalties on account of developer share shall be paid in US dollars or Swedish krona or less all advances and other permitted charges. And that, and that kind of floats through with section B here. But if we pretend that it says that, and that's certainly the intent of the contract, that's where the meeting of the minds would live, then this first section says, note, we can pay you in United States dollars or Swedish kronor. The second section says, within 30 days from publisher receiving gross revenues from platform, publishers shall deliver to developer a royalty statement which developer shall use to properly invoice publisher for revenue share earned. There are a couple of slightly odd things happening here, and I do want to point them out. So the first is, this is a basic obligation on the part of the publisher to deliver a quote-unquote royalty statement. We will see in subsection C what that is, but before we even get there, it's just important to note, there's a bunch of paperwork that needs to change hands for the publisher to tell the developer what money it got, how all of this up here works. Hey, we received this in gross. Hey, we netted all of this stuff. Here's your bottom line number. Here's what would be your 50% cut. And so they have to deliver a statement like that really in all likelihood every month within 30 days of receiving gross revenue. I do want to point out that this from platform is probably something I would kick out. You say, why Why would you kick that out, Rick? Well, it would be because you're going to get a revenue share, your developer share, out of both the game and any ancillary product. And that's designed to include things that are not, I don't believe, sold by the platform. If we go and we look at the definitions for platform, that's you'll develop the game for the PC or the Xbox or whatever it is that you're going to develop it for. But if you sell a strategy guide or if you sell a hat or a CD, chances are that isn't going through somebody on PC. I don't even know what the platform is for that purpose, probably Steam or Windows, something along those lines. And so you have a concern here, just looking at the definitions that say, all right, by the time we're talking about this, we probably shouldn't be limiting it solely to the platform. It should be instead 30 days from publisher receiving gross revenues. How do we talk about it in this section from the game or any ancillary product? That's probably what I would do. Little bit of niggling, but in all honesty, that's what you pay the lawyer for. The other component of this is a little odd, is that you get a royalty statement and then the developer is supposed to invoice the publisher back. So the Raw Fury will deliver a royalty statement of $5,000 and then developer is supposed to invoice Raw Fury for $2,500. It's a little bit odd. Uh, there can be different ways that all of these things are configured. So there might be a very good reason in terms of paperwork, maybe even international uh, accounting standards that they are trying to comply with. But they are asking for developer to send a piece of paper back for the invoice uh, for the proper amount when the royalty statement, if it's not disputed, should basically just mean the amount in question. Now, it can be disputed. So that might be another avenue that they're trying to prevent sending checks early and things on. Now, what's in that royalty statement? Well, a lot of legal words. Each royalty payment hereunder shall be based on the affirmation royalty statement in accordance with publishers' regular accounting practices. Each royalty statement shall contain information relating to the life-to-date activity of the game. So what's happened with the sales of the game throughout its existence and throughout its sales period, including the period of the statement, what, what period does this statement relate to, the origin of the gross revenues, what platform did it come from, maybe what geography it came from, the cost of goods, what it took for us to package it, potentially licensing fees, your gross royalty, which in this context is a little bit tricky to kind of understand, but it basically means a royalty before some or another of the components that would be netted uh, against the net amount for the royalty would be taken into account. 
reserves, which are going to be amounts that Raw Fury holds back in case there are returns or replacements or other costs. And we'll see that covered in another section as well. Earned royalties, what you've already gotten from this relationship, sublicense and repackage sales, and ancillary product sales. Each royalty statement shall become binding on both parties, and developers shall neither have nor make any claim against publisher with respect to such statement unless developer objects in writing to the royalty statement on of the specific basis of such claim within one year after the date publisher renders such royalty statement. So they send you a royalty statement if you're on the developer side, and then you have a year to look at it and say, hmm, I'm not so sure about X, Y, or Z. After that year passes, you will not have a claim against them. It's a kind of statute of limitations put into this contract. It's not unusual. Chances are you should be looking at these things within well earlier than a year later. So it's a it's a generous time period to kind of evaluate the royalty statement. But if that date passes, you can't challenge it. Before then, you can challenge it. Publisher has 90 days from game being released on platform to exactly calculate the total sum of advances, the money they've paid to developer, and all permitted charges to be deducted from gross revenues. During this period, publisher will propose and developer shall agree on an approximation of these fees to be used for all royalty statement calculations until the exact number has been produced by publisher, right? So there are certain of these categories of things that we're not really going to know until we've actually sold into the market for a little while. So what publisher does, what they say they're going to do here in this section is, okay, we think we're going to spend about this much. We think we're going to spend about this much. We think this cost will be this. We think this cost will be this. So we can all agree that this is what we're going to base any kind of early royalty payments on is that these numbers are real. And then within three months after this thing has fully gone to market and we know exactly what's happening and why, then we will lock in those numbers. And then they have a really nice legal provision here in the blue that says when exact calculations are ready and applied, They will be used to adjust royalty statements according to the difference between the approximate numbers, those estimates, and the exact calculated numbers that have then been accounted and verified. Said another way, okay, once we get that finalized, we now know that we didn't spend 10,000, we spent 12,000. So we might have overly paid you at some point in time and we'll net that against probably the next check, uh, presuming there's enough funds flow for that to make sense, or the opposite that we thought we'd spend 10,000, we only spent eight, you get a little goose up. We can send you an extra check. We can make the next check a little bit higher. One of the reasons I said that this was a nice statement is I will tell you from my experience practicing in contract law that in general, when you've got an estimate, say for working capital or something else uh, in, in your document, it often is the case that you have that estimate and then you have a couple of paragraphs, if not pages, talking about the math involved of finalizing that and true upping it and making sure everybody gets paid. And this is a very uh, nice way of saying all of that in one sentence. You could get into potential trouble. It's a little bit more vague in terms of what exactly this means, but I don't think so. I think everybody understands when they say, okay, we'll make sure that it looks like what it should have looked like if we had been using the exact numbers from the first date. I think everybody can understand that. And I think that's a, a good way of using contract language in that kind of plain English approach that doesn't just have three pages of math and little equations and things that everybody has to check three or four times uh, before they even sign off on. Publishers shall have the right to establish reserves for returns and defective games in accordance with publishers' business practices. So whatever they do normally, but with a caveat, a ceiling, not to exceed 10% of royalties owed to developer. Unused reserves shall be liquidated on a rolling monthly basis dependent on when they were reserved. So they're going to keep a little amount back 
you know, under their accounting books. They're not going to pay you those royalties on them. They're going to assume that a set percentage are going to require replacement or repair or whatever it looks like for what you're actually selling into the marketplace. And then every month they're going to look at that number and say, okay, we need to reserve this for the next month. And if we have some excess that goes back into the royalty pool and you get paid out as the developer. Nothing here offends the conscience. That all makes a lot of sense if you're from the publisher side and the developer side as well. Royalty payments shall be less whatever taxes the laws of the applicable jurisdiction require be withheld in connection with such royalties and subject to applicable local currency remittance laws or foreign exchange remittance regulations. Now, you could write this in a couple of different ways. In essence, what this section says is we will comply with the laws. If our jurisdiction or your jurisdiction requires us to hold a certain amount back for potential taxation on royalties for something else, then we will do that. We'll comply with what the law requires. So there's really no arguments around these various kinds of things. If you're concerned about this, if you're sitting on the developer side, you say, is there anything? Are there any kind of remittances or applicable statutory constructions that we need to be worried about here? Oftentimes the answer to that will be no. Sometimes it'll be yes. And that's important information for you to have before you enter into an agreement like this. Publisher agrees that developer at its own cost may, once during any calendar year, audit its books and records for the purpose of determining the accuracy of publisher's royalty statements to developer. Now, this is very, very, very important. Whenever, if you're on the developer side, or if you're on any side that's going to get money from a contract in the future based on some condition that is outside of your control, the audit right is so important to get. Why? Because it makes perfect sense. Raw Fury is going to be getting this money in. And they're going to be sending you out a piece of paper that says the amount of money they got in, the amount of money they spent on getting the books, uh, getting the game out into the marketplace, anything else that would be credited under that earlier section that we already took a look at. And even if they're not bad actors, people make mistakes. They get things wrong. Human beings are human beings. So it makes a lot of sense for you who doesn't control that cash flow, doesn't see the money coming into the accounts, is otherwise taking it on faith that you're getting good and accurate information to have the right to say either something doesn't feel right or just once a year, we're going to pay for somebody to come in and look at what you've got. If developer wishes to perform any such audit, developer shall notify publisher in writing at least 30 days prior to the planned audit. All audits shall be made during regular business hours and shall be conducted on developer's behalf by a certified independent public accountant. Now that's a requirement. There often isn't this bit of language here. And I think this is one of those areas where Raw Fury is protecting itself, but justifiably so, that says, okay, we'll open our books to you, uh, but you have to use an actual certified independent public accountant. It can't just be your guy that looks at books and now argues with us about what generally accepted accounting principles are and all this various things. You actually have to use an accountant to do this uh, and it's going to be at your own cost. You can only do it once uh, and it's going to be during our regular business hours. You've also might see language in a contract like this that says something along the lines of uh, you'll do uh, commercially reasonable efforts to not disturb our business practices, to not be loud, uh, to not otherwise bother our employees right there. This is only a books and records audit, so that probably doesn't come up. Each examination shall be made at developer's own expense. I highlighted that just because it's funny, right? They, they cover this twice, at its own cost, developer's own expense. They want it to be very clear that you have to pay for this if you're the developer. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just funny that I saw it doubled up and I, I think it's amusing. At publisher's regular place of business where the books and records will be made available to developer's accountant. In the event that developer establishes as a result of an audit conducted by developer that there is a discrepancy in the royalty payments due to developer of 5% or more for the period covered by the audit, 
Then publishers shall pay to developer upon settlement of the audit, paying the amount that they owe, developers reasonable third-party legal and auditor's fees and disbursements actually incurred in connection with such audit and interest at the rate of 5% per annum per year on the underpaid amount. So you get a right to audit their books and records. It's a very important right. Highly recommend it for any time you've got something that's based on the efforts or information of another. And if your guy, your certified independent public accountant goes in and says, wow, they they paid you $10,000, they owed you 50, then with a discrepancy of that type, publisher actually says, all right, so it was at your own cost, but that that looks bad. It's more than 5%. You know what? We should pay for that. Uh, It wasn't our intent. It's a very nice provision to have, and it gives you that kind of safety valve. I would say from a legal perspective, from the lawyer's perspective, I do like to see this buttoned up usually a little bit more to say, what happens if the discrepancy isn't 5% or more? They say they will settle up here if it is 5% or more. They'll, they'll pay the amount they owe. They don't actually say that in a sentence uh, if it's less than 5%. Now, I don't have any reason to believe they wouldn't because the contract obligates them to hit these numbers based on this specific math, right? But if it were a 3% discrepancy, they still owe the developer the 3%. There probably should be a sentence here that says, if it doesn't hit that 5% threshold, then developer will still pay its own freight. But we will, of course, settle up the audit amount. It doesn't say that. Probably okay. uh, But that's, from a lawyer's perspective, what I would like to see. Anytime you see a condition that says, if this happens, then this happens, I want to see if that doesn't happen, what happens. And that doesn't happen in this section, uh, but it's a minor complaint for otherwise a a lot of good concepts uh, for the developer. Publish shall have the same auditing rights against developer as described in section 18G. That's this section right here. Should this agreement be terminated and development funding repayment as described in section 12 is in effect. And we talked about that section in the earlier part of this series, right? We talked about the fact that If developer funding repayment, if bad things happen, things get terminated, you owe that money back, uh, the 70%, the 50% split, all that good stuff. They say, well, all right, now the shoe is on the other foot because we can't see the money you're making, either with a separate publisher or if you're self-published and you owe us 70% or 50% or whatever that is under the contract, we get that audit right against you. And this is one of those areas that I really like in the raw fury contract. You see how this works. This is one of those things that I like to do in my negotiations, which is you've got this big, long legal paragraph about what's going to happen, how an audit works. And I said, hey, that's pretty generous to developers. It makes a lot of sense. One of the reasons it is generous to developers and it makes a lot of sense is because raw fury wants to use that paragraph for itself as well. We call this mutuality. And it's one of the ways you can negotiate a contract to say, all right, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. If you don't have a problem with this language, then let's make it apply to you. Sometimes that'll just happen. It'll just be mutual. Sometimes in those negotiations, you'll find that they don't much care for it on the gander. And you can get some of those provisions changed uh, a little bit to make it a little bit more palatable to the other side. When you do put that shoe on the other foot, you find people's revealed preferences uh, a little bit more boldly. And I do like that Raw Fury opens with that. And they've certainly said that throughout a number of the sections of this document. We want this to be mutual. Wherever we can put mutuality, we put it because that's the fairest possible outcome. If it's good for you, it's good for me. And now we can argue about what this thing should look like because we know I might be using it, you might be using it. And that's a really good way to look at contracts in general. Finally, if developer claims that additional monies are payable to developer, publisher shall not be deemed to be in material breach of this agreement unless... So in general, developer says, hey, you owe us more money. Publisher is not in breach unless publisher fails to produce appropriate books and records of manufacture and sales for audit. So if it hides its books, it's automatically in breach. 
which is good, right? You're a developer. You've accused them of not paying you enough money and they say, you can't see our books. Despite all this up here, then okay, yeah, obviously they're in breach, right? Such claims shall have been reduced to a final judgment by a court of competent jurisdiction and publisher shall have failed to pay within 30 days after publisher having received written notice of the entry of such judgment. You go to court against us for more money. The court sides with you and makes a judgment. Yeah, we're in breach if we don't pay it within 30 days, which, you know, isn't a lot of comfort because you got a court order. So you're going to win that argument, period. Similarly, in C, if publisher has agreed in writing that there are royalties owing and does not pay within 30 days, it's in breach. So not a ton of comfort here, but you don't really need it from this section because you've got the audit right. You've got the other obligations and you've got what you need to bring that case to court should you need to do so. Muddies the waters a little bit on when a breach happens because the breach may not have been technically occurring until you actually get that court order. It's kind of a weird timing component, but it doesn't really block you if you're on the developer side. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about sharing profits. It all really lives in this one sentence. Publisher gets 50%, developer gets 100% minus 50%, and then a whole lot of math, a whole lot of credits, a whole lot of counting, and a whole lot of rules around how papers should be exchanged, the fact that you have to send an invoice back, what's on the papers that are exchanged, what an audit looks like, and all the rest. But this really is important stuff, especially if you're depending on this money to keep your dream and your video game company alive. That's been chapter five, part five of this long form series. We're going to get into a few more technical and legally oriented uh, parts coming up. This was really the end of the operational section, owning the IP, delivering it, marketing it, funding it, sharing in that revenue stream. Next, we're going to be talking about the promises you make about the product. If you're on the developer side, your representations and your warranties. Part seven is about them having to pay for breaches, indemnification, Part eight, termination. Part nine, a lot of the extra stuff that might float over your head. It's generally going to be titled as miscellaneous or something like that. And then the conclusion going over all that we've talked about, potentially uh, with the guest appearance. Don't know if that'll happen or not, but really hopefully tying this all up with a ribbon, what this game publishing contract looks like. Thank you so much for checking out Virtual Legality today. If you like this, if you like this content, let me know in the comments to this video. This is a little bit of an unusual series for virtual legality. Usually we're talking about the business and law of hot button news topics. We've obviously been covering a lot of hot button news uh, recently, but I do want to know if this is stuff that interests you. If you like this content on this channel, I like doing it, uh, but I'm always interested in, in what you like about virtual legality and what you don't. If you do like it, like it, subscribe, do those things. If you don't, hey, you can give a dislike as well. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. If you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.